Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you joined that travel club? Well, here's why you should. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You'll get to be a part of a fantastic group of folks traveling together. And of course, visit some fantastic destinations. The website is travelingculturati.com. Make sure you head on over there and join in the fun. One of the travel experiences that I absolutely love to have is to taste different cuisines around the world. Well, today I'm chatting with someone who loves to do exactly that. Yeah, there's some kismet there. Nadia Boachi is the creator behind Travel and Munchies, a food blog dedicated to taking her followers around the world through the global through the global recipes she shares. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news. It is official. The U.S. ends COVID-19 vaccine requirements for inbound travelers. The United States has lifted the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for inbound international air travelers on Friday, May 12th. That has been in place since October 2021. President Joe Biden said in a proclamation announcing the change, considering the progress that we have made and based on the latest guidance from our public health experts, I have determined that we no longer need the international air travel restrictions. As we continue to monitor the evolving state of COVID-19 and the emergence of virus variants, we have the tools to detect and respond to the potential emergence of a variant of high consequence. Biden also announced to end the vaccine requirements for federal employees and contractors and for foreign nationals at land borders. The Department of Homeland Security, meanwhile, said it will no longer require vaccinations for non-U.S. travelers entering at ferry terminals. Industry groups, including the U.S. Travel Association, applauded the change. In all, there are 103 countries that no longer have COVID-19 travel restrictions requiring vaccination or COVID-19 testing. That means not all. So there may be a few countries that are still requiring one or the other or both. So you definitely want to check the country entry requirements before you travel. Biden has been very busy because he's also announced a U.S. proposed passenger compensation rule for airlines. But IATA, the International Air Transport Authority, says it will raise costs but not eliminate travel delays and cancellations. President Joe Biden says his administration will write new rules to expand the rights of airline passengers. Biden said that the rules will require airlines to compensate passengers and cover their meals in hotel rooms if they are stranded for reasons within the airline's control. Airlines for America, which represents the biggest carriers, says the airlines have no incentive to delay or cancel flights. The trade group blames weather or their meals in hotel rooms if they are stranded for reasons within the airline's control. Airlines for America, which represents the biggest carriers, says the airlines have no incentive to delay or cancel flights. The trade group blames weather and or traffic 
and air traffic control outages for most delays. The compensation would be in addition to ticket refunds when the airline is at fault for a flight being canceled or significantly delayed. It would give customers in the United States protections similar to those in the European Union. Biden said, I know how frustrated many of you are with the service you get from your U.S. airlines, especially after airlines received taxpayer relief to get through the pandemic. You deserve more than just getting the price of your ticket refunded. You deserve to be fully compensated. Your time matters. The impact of your life matters. Officials at the Transportation Department, which will write the new rules, said they didn't have a precise date for when they expect to finish, but indicated they are working to quickly publish a notice that is required to get the process started. Uber is venturing into flight bookings as part of the United Kingdom travel super app strategy. Uber, the ride-sharing giant, has set its sights on becoming a travel super app by expanding its services beyond ride-sharing. The company has recently ventured into the world of air travel by offering flight bookings for domestic and international flights. While the service is currently only available in the UK, Uber has plans to expand it to the United States and other regions soon. The move is part of Uber's broader ambition to become a one-stop shop for all travel-related needs. With the introduction of flight bookings, Uber aims to provide its customers with a seamless travel experience where they can book their flights, rides, and accommodations all in one place. According to Uber, the United Kingdom launch of its flight booking service is a test bed for the company's plans to do the same in other regions. In addition to flights, Uber has also been testing bookings for national and international rail journeys and coach bookings in the UK. Now, why would Uber do this? Well, the company believes that if customers book their flights through the Uber app, they are more likely to use its ride-sharing services to travel to and from the airport. In essence, the flight booking service is a gateway for customers to experience the convenience and ease of using Uber's other services. So just to be clear, they're not getting into the flying business or the airline business, but the flight booking business. Their long-term strategy is to become a super app. Uber's agreement last year to incorporate all yellow cabs in New York City into its platform was a step towards achieving this very objective. However, Uber has expressed its desire to expand beyond the travel industry altogether, indicating that its ambitions extend far beyond including taxis and flight bookings in its app. Here's some food for thought. Africa comprises 54 nations and some 1.5 billion people. That equates to approximately 28% of the world's countries and close to 20% of the world's population. Yet, African aviation represents only 2.1% of total air traffic, where there's some efforts that are in place to change that. Part of the reason right now is that infrastructure constraints, high costs, lack of connectivity, regulatory impediments, slow adoption of global standards, and skills shortages affect the customer experience and are all contributory 
factors to African Airlines' viability and sustainability. The continent's carriers suffered cumulative losses of $3.5 billion for 2020 and 2022. Moreover, IATA, the International Air Transportation Authority, estimates further losses of $213 million in 2023. Willie Walsh, IATA's director general, says the limiting factors of Africa's aviation sector are fixable. The potential for growth is clear, and the economic boost that a more successful African aviation sector will deliver has been witnessed in many economies already. With Focus Africa, stakeholders are uniting to deliver on six critical areas that will make a positive difference. They'll measure success and will need to hold each other accountable with more details for each task area. Well, that's good news. And yes, it's true. Getting around Africa is a big feat, to be honest with you, and reliability is one of them. Well, Marriott is finally including fees in its nightly rates. Don't you just hate when you go online and you book a hotel room and you see the the quote, but when you book it, it is now much higher because there were additional mandatory fees that were not quoted in the price. Well, that's all about to change. In recent years, resort fees have often topped the list of travel annoyances, as these fees, which sometimes approach $100 a night, have not typically been included in the initial listed nightly rate for a hotel. Well, President Biden targeted Marriott in his State of the Union address earlier this year, and Marriott was even the target of a Pennsylvania Attorney General's investigation into how the company handled resort fees. Marriott eventually settled with the Pennsylvania Attorney General, and while Marriott maintained it was always transparent in how it charged the fees, often in a blue box, noting the added fee at the top of a booking window, the company now bundles the resort fee into the rate. Fees are now included in Marriott.com bookings. The fee transparency goes beyond just online bookings, however. All rate displays for a Marriott booking have to now include the resort or destination fees, and call center agents also have to include the fees in their overall rate quotes. Marriott and all its competitors charge resort fees. But if Marriott now bundles it in its pricing, does that mean that the rest of the industry will follow suit? It is not as if those were hidden fees somehow. We're simply further clarifying and enhancing that transparency, the um, Marriott says. This is on the company's first quarter earnings call earlier this month. Adding also, I will leave it to the state around the rest of the country for the rest of the industry, but I'm pleased that we will lead the industry in terms of transparency of our disclosure for our guests. In creepy news... A man allegedly hid a secret camera in Royal Caribbean cruise ship bathroom. This is according to the Department of Justice. He allegedly filmed 150 people, including 40 minors. The Justice Department recently unsealed charges against a man who allegedly put a camera inside a bathroom on board Royal Caribbean cruise ship and filmed 150 people, including 40 minors. Jeremy Froeus boarded a Royal Caribbean ship bound for St. Martin, San Juan, and the Bahamas in Miami on April 29th. This is according to a complaint unsealed last week in federal court in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
on or about April 30th, when the Harmony was navigating in international waters, Froeas installed a hidden Wi-Fi camera in a public bathroom on the aft of the Harmony's top deck between the Flow Rider surfing simulator and a bar. An FBI special agent said in a criminal complaint, that bathroom was a unisex bathroom, according to court documents. When a passenger reported there was a hidden camera in the bathroom, security found it and reviewed the micro SD card which allegedly showed Froeas adjusting the camera and connecting it to his phone. The initial videos depict Froeas hiding the camera and adjusting the angle of the camera so it focuses on the area of the toilet. Froeas is also seen taking his Apple phone 14 Pro Max out of his pocket and appears to have connected the phone to the hidden camera using Wi-Fi. Froeas then exits the bathroom. More than 150 individuals, including those 40 minors, were seen naked or partially naked on the camera. Some were as young as four and five years old. Individuals are seen coming into the bathroom to either use the toilet or to change into or out of swimsuits. Froia's camera captured these individuals in various stages of undress, including capturing videos of their naked genitals, buttocks, and female breasts. Cruise ship security interviewed Froia's, and he allegedly admitted to placing the camera in the bathroom and knew it had been found because it was not he was not able to find it when he went to get it. A day later, Froia's is charged with video voyeurism and attempted possession of child exploitation material. He was released on a $25,000 bond by a judge pending trial. He did not enter a plea. The FBI set up a website for anyone who might have been a victim to report it to the agency. The FBI believes he primarily targeted cruise ship passengers between the time frame of April 30th and May 1st, who may have used the public bathroom on the aft of the Harmony's top deck between the Flowrider surfing simulator and a bar. Ugh. Well, how about some uh, good news, some feel-good news? United Airlines is doing its part to help those aging out of foster care system with much-needed employment opportunities. The Calibrate Apprenticeship Program launched in Houston this year as a 36-month earn-and-learn program to train more than 1,000 aircraft maintenance technicians by 2026, with the goal of at least half being women and people of color. On the heels of that successful launch, and with May being National Foster Care Awareness Month, United welcomed more than a dozen young adults in foster care to George Bush International Airport to learn more about careers in aviation. In a release, United noted that in the state of Texas, once you reach the age of 18, you are legally classified as an adult and Child Protective Services no longer has control of your decision making. When this happens... It is referred to as a person of aging out. And they often struggle with a career path. Aubrey Jackson, corporate communications manager for United Airlines in Houston, is an adoptee who knows the value of having available resources, stating, knowing this, I wanted to expose them to opportunities in aviation and be a supportive force in helping them navigate towards a path of success. United continues to invest in the next generation of aviation leaders by partnering with Houston Angels, a local nonprofit that aids youth aging out of foster care. 
the aviation giant and the nonprofit teamed up to hold an informative tour at George Bush Intercontinental Airport, where young people preparing to embark on adulthood were exposed to the various opportunities available. During the tour, the youth were exposed to internships in addition to full and part-time positions. They also were given the opportunity to hear from aircraft maintenance technicians, customer service agents, and staff from the Houston airport system to hear what it's like to work in airport construction. To learn more about the career opportunities with United, you can visit careers.united.com. And to learn more about Houston Angels and how to support their Dare to Dream program that connects youth in care, ages 11 to 22, to a dedicated mentor to guide and support them through journey into adulthood, you can visit hughangels.org. I'd like to finish it on a high note. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back... I'm chatting with Nadia Broachi, travel blogger with Travel and Munchies. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati. Hopefully this summer won't be a repeat of last summer's Summer of Chaos. That being said, the travel industry is gearing up for a very busy summer travel season. Yes, revenge travel is still a thing, and we're back to pre-pandemic numbers, but the airline industry and other elements have not fully recovered with staff and crew. Here are some tips to make your summer travel easier and more carefree. Book now. Prices are higher than last summer and availability is already diminishing. Buy travel insurance. From weather to illnesses, be prepared and avoid being stuck. Get TSA PreCheck and clear. Lines will be long, and having either or both will save you time and reduce your stress. Pack light. While you should do this always, it's more prevalent during busy travel times, and luggage fees are so high, so it will save you. Sign up for alerts and download the Airlines app. This will put you at the front of the line if there are cancellations and delays, and it will allow you to manage your reservation immediately. Pack your patience and remember, you're on vacation. So don't sweat the small stuff or allow others and their negative energy to rob you of your well-deserved vacation. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com, and follow us. And make sure you join the Travel Club because we go to some fantastic places. Be on the lookout for Belize. Yes, it's a pause and play. Take a pause out of your life and then play with us in Belize. That's coming up November 8th through the 12th. But you can already join us in Croatia. We only have about three cabins left on a private luxury yacht. Only 17 cabins on board. It's going to be completely ours. And we're going to cruise from Croatia to uh, from Split, Croatia to Dubrovnik. And we also have Greece coming up September 1st through the 9th. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And you know me, I'm a huge foodie, so I am so excited 
to talk with my guest today, Nadia Boachi, who is the creator behind Travel and Munchies, my favorite pastime, eating. Yes. <laughs> you haven't experienced a destination until you've eaten your way through it. Hello, Nadia, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello. How are you today? Fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I got super excited when I came across uh, your your uh, blog, uh, Travel and Munchies. As I said, food is one of my favorite pastimes. And I do think it really gives us, it's like a window into a culture. It really is. So how did you get started? So Travel and Munchies, I've had an Instagram account with that name for several years. Way back when, when I was in my undergrad, I did an exchange to Scotland. I was in Glasgow. And when I was in Glasgow, I was traveling around Europe. And so I kind of made this account so I could document my travels. And it was a food blog account from the start, but it was food blogging from the different countries I was in. When I came back to my homeschool, so that was at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, um, I kept the name and was sort of just documenting restaurants in the city of Montreal. Um, so there was a bit of travel, but not too much. I did a bit of travel to Nicaragua. I did Peru, Bolivia, Chile all in that time and documented it. But it was purely a fun account just for that. Um just for sharing with friends mostly back before Instagram was so monetizable. Then after my undergrad came to Toronto um, to do a master's here um, in neuro neuroscience. So it was in neuroimaging. And while I was doing my master's, I always like having part-time jobs on the side, um, things that interest me. So I was working for a food media company, Taste Toronto. And at that company, I was doing more of the same stuff. So it was more professional photography for restaurants in the city. I was It was a really fun side job to have during my master's because it was just going to restaurants, they'd order everything on the menu, I'd photograph it and get to eat it and obviously bring people with me. Um, so that was a very fun job. But then the pandemic happened and it kind of shifted things for everyone, um, myself included. My master's was put on a halt because it was clinical research um, and my job at Taste Toronto, so photographing at restaurants was also put on a hold because restaurants were closed. Um, Taste Toronto wanted me to sort of pivot. They knew I could cook. Um, so they asked me to pivot and make recipes for them. I've always been attracted to global cuisines. I think that's because I'm a Ghanaian background. So West Africa, Grew up in a Ghanaian household, so eating Ghanaian food, but being brought up in Canada that is so multicultural, I was exposed to just so many different kinds of food. So from the get-go with Taste Toronto, I was making food from all over the world. I didn't really put any constraints on myself. Um, and as I was posting for them, I was allowed to post on my own personal account, the Travel and Munchies account, and things sort of just picked up from there. People started reaching out. I think it gained some traction. People enjoyed it. Um, and then I made other platforms. So TikTok, Pinterest by the same name that, uh, people also really enjoyed and sort of started doing my own thing. Um, again, it pivoted from restaurant stuff to home cooked meals from around the world. So that's kind of the evolution of travel and munchies. Yeah. And you know, as you were talking, um, I, I, 
just trying to make the connection between neuroscience and <laughs> flute blogger, <laughs> but um, you, you certainly gave us, um, you know, the narrative about that as far as working with the restaurants and all. Uh, so what, however, though, what was that transition to say, this is the path I want to go uh, follow and, and not the path of neuroscience, which is so much more technical and uh, completely different field. Yeah, I feel like I've always been very, um, I like structure, but I'm also, I also thrive with a lack of structure. Um, and with the Taste Toronto job, just going to restaurants, every place was different. It was kind of different every day of the job, um, as well as doing my own thing now. It's kind of nice to sort of plan my own day and have that flexibility with neuroscience it is one of the more creative science fields because so many things we study in neuroscience are newly being discovered and evolving as you study them. Um, so I think there is a bit of creativity there, but again, just the whole process of actually doing clinical research is a bit more like an office job than I think people realize because with research, you're in front of the computer a lot, um, basically analyzing different scans or writing. Um, and while I'm still doing writing, it's a bit more creative. I, I definitely have a passion for food um, and I'm not fully letting go of science. I think science will be in my life in some capacity, whether that's research or even more school. Um, but yeah, science is there. It's been put on a back burner for now, but uh, I'm following the food path. I just really do have a passion for food and like learning about cultures um, through food. And I feel like food is the easiest gateway into learning about different people. It really is when you're um, talking about the the tastes and the spices and the creation. And, and, you know, food can be very scientific as well. Just have a mistake in the kitchen and you understand, <laughs> especially <laughs> with baking, exactly. <laughs> the science behind food. Uh, so when did your love of food began? Um, it's, it's, at first I thought this wasn't an answerable question, but um, I think it began from a way younger age than I fully realized. My mom has always been um, a cook. So she was always in the kitchen and catering was never her full-time job, but she would always cater for people for different functions, whether it was birthday parties um, for her different church groups. She would always make baked goods. She always made us homemade birthday cakes when we were growing up so we could choose what kind of cake we wanted. So it was often Disney or Barbie cakes. I have grew up with twin sisters that are younger than me. So um, lots of feminine energy in the house. Um, but there was always cooking. So I feel like it started from her without me fully realizing because I didn't take a full interest in it. I did cook for myself starting from a young age. And I think I enjoyed feeding people from a young age, which is weird to say. But I remembered I, I really enjoyed the pleasure of making something um, and giving it to people and them enjoying it. Um, and so... Yeah, I think it started from a very, very young age. Um, and, and Ghanians, um, West Africans, honestly, everything revolves around food. If you're having a party, the first question is, what are we eating? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I think in the African-American culture as well, and I, I do have that kind of connection with food. It's For me, it's family, it's friendship, it's uh, 
um, it, it's the, the memories and and uh, I, iconic moments and and all of that. It's really always centered around food uh, for me. But there's a, a an age old question, um, and I'm sh sure I know which direction or what answer I'm going to get from you. But I'm going to ask it anyway. And this is the <laughs> jollof rice, <laughs> because the Western. African countries are like in competition with who has the best. <laughs> yes, it's honestly a hilarious uh, discussion across the internet. It's a it's a fun discussion, you know, but uh, it's definitely a touchy subject. So, if you look on the internet, it's often between Ghanaians and Nigerians, two English speaking West African countries. Um, but jollof rice actually originated from Senegal. Um, and Senegalese people have a lot of different variations, a lot of different kinds of jollof rice that go by jollof, but also a lot of other names. The base of jollof, I'm sure a lot of people know this now, is basically rice that is cooked in a tomato stew. Um, and that is how Ghanaians and Nigerians cook it. It's pretty basic. It's literally just rice cooked in tomato stew. And it's served with things like um, chicken, side salad, um, fried plantain, the way Senegalese make it, so the originators, they make it lots of different ways. They often cook it with tons of vegetables or fish or chicken or different meats. And so it's more of a big pot, almost a bit paella-esque, but huge chunks of veggies. Ghanaians and Nigerians make it quite simple. And honestly, it's incredible, but it's so simple. It's literally just, like I said, rice cooked in tomato stew. It's not, uh, it's not supposed to be fancy. It's just a staple um, in Ghanaian cuisine. And I am confidently saying Ghanaians have the best jollof. Um, and I, I don't want to start any fights, but it's just so tasty. Um, the way my aunt, mom, family, friends make it. Um, it's really distinct. When we go to any function, we know who we're asking to make jollof at any event. Yeah. And, you know, the simplest of dishes uh, sometimes are the most, I won't say complicated, but it's it's like it's the simplest, but it's like the best, but it's about the spices. And I always say if you don't have that ingredient of love in there, <laughs> absolutely. It, messes it up so even the simplest of dishes i think are have such big representation because they are so simple but they have to be well done you know it's it, it you just cannot mess it up because exactly. those who eat it all the time will certainly know like in the exactly. um and in, in in our household it's who made the potato salad and <laughs> it it sounds like a simple thing and if you were to dare show up with store-bought potato salad you'd be thrown out like no <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I love jollof rice and I and I love the different spices that the different cultures use, some more spicy than others. And thank you for the um the the more background and um um originating um culture who created jollof rice and, and and the many variations um of it. But again, the simplest of dishes uh take the most time and care to get them right. And especially rice, because I think that with so many if, if people mess up rice all the time and it's like the simplest of things even just plain rice <laughs> exactly no, rice is one of the hard it's it's like boiling an egg you know it's sometimes those basic skills that people 
Um, you know, it takes a bit of practice to get it right. So the rice isn't mushy, so it's not over seasoned. Um, but yes, jollof rice, like an egg salad. I feel like an egg, a potato, so not egg salad, potato salad. I put eggs in my potato salad. I don't know if that's a faux pas, um, but I feel like a potato salad is quite, um, it's more complicated than jollof, honestly. <laughs> Well, well, that it is. And so I usually uh, give that to my sister. My sister makes the best potato salad. So we, you don't even compete. It's just, okay, it's, it's, that's you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we won't take anyone else. So let's talk about some other cuisines um, that you love and have experienced through your journey um so what what would do you have a favorite because people ask me that sometimes with travel and it's hard to really answer that question so it's it's yeah. different for different reasons it's so hard to answer that question because every cuisine has certain countries have an advantage over others i'll say that first because of just mere size um so, for example, a country like India with so many different regions and states and so many cultures, languages within that country, they have a ton of variation. And though they have influences from other countries, um, they're kind of their own, their own culture, their own food um, versus a country like Trinidad, which I recently went to last year for a couple of weeks. So I went to Trinidad and Tobago. They, for example, have so many different cultural influences, including Indian influence from indentured servants that came there um, and African influence from African slaves. And they have their own cuisine, but again, it's a much, much, much smaller country. Um, if I was to give you a short answer, my favorite food to cook is Indian food. Um, I feel like it's the most, um, when you're cooking, you think of having a pot or a pan and just throwing in different ingredients constantly until you get a finished product. And I find that that's what a lot of Indian food is. It's kind of starting with a pot, adding oil, then it's just spice, 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 layering, protein, and then you have your final product and I sort of like that aspect of it the mise en place with Indian food is always so impressive um but I don't know to eat every single day it's difficult to say I I'm really hoping to go to Japan to fully experience the culture and India as well I haven't had an opportunity to go to India either but um, I really want to go to Japan just to see if there is a lot more complexity to the food in Japan than I already, than I have been exposed to. Um, yeah, so that's a really long-winded answer. I don't have a favorite cuisine, so I'm not sure if that is an answer that you probably heard from a lot of other people. Well, it is. I mean, it's 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 hard to really, as I said, when people ask me what's my favorite destination, um, I can't say hands down that it's one, but I like different destinations for different things. Um, and and so that's pretty much what it is. And, you know, for me, I think um, when, when it comes to desserts, for example, um, not every culture really understands sugar the way some other cultures do. Um yeah because sugar is a very interesting thing. It sounds simple. Again, going back to something that's simple, that can be very complex. Uh, yeah. So with that thought, let's, let's talk about some sweets. Um, uh, do you bake? I absolutely love baking. Um, I bake all the time. <laughs> 
And so what, because Ghanaian culture is not so much about, um, and if I'm pronouncing, is it Ghanaian? You were saying Ghanaian, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm saying this wrong the whole time. <laughs> no, you're not, you're not, not saying it wrong. I think with my weird accent or how I just say it in my household, I say Ghanaian. But I think that Ghanaian is like perfectly acceptable and maybe the right way to say it. Honestly, um, I think, yeah, Ghanaians would say Ghanaian, but also Ghanaian is perfectly acceptable. Okay. <laughs> I, think it's my accent. I have a, this Canadian accent, so I say my A's like really, I don't say as like Americans say pasta um or did, is that what you guys say yeah i think pasta is what you uh, say. yeah well that american accent is pasta so yeah. depending on what region in the united states you're from some people may say pasta but it's <laughs> it's pasta <Yeah>. the a <laughs> isn't as long and if if i were italian i would you know probably pronounce it even a little bit more different but i do say pasta uh, but again <laughs> if 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 i were in the the deep south it probably would be pasta you know maybe and and then of course um Boston or something like that would it be pasta, you know, so, so it's different accents in the, within the United States. But I don't yeah. re recall, um, is is baking prevalent in, uh, yeah. or sweets prevalent in, in Ghana? It is and it isn't. So when I think of classic Ghanaian desserts, because often when you're making Ghanaian food, you want a dessert to be there. The only Ghanaian dessert that is made consistently is bufrot. Um, which is basically a fried dough ball. It's a wet donut dough, but it's yeasted. Um, and Ghanians have confectionery. I wouldn't say that we have too many classic desserts. Again, Bofrot, the fried donut, is actually a breakfast food eaten with porridge. So you'll often find it sold at the market, um, but it's a snack or breakfast food. My mom always makes donut at every function, and that's their classic dessert. Ghanians don't like sweets per se. But there are Ghanaian confectionery, like I said, um, for example, Nkata cake, which literally is just peanut cake. Nkatia is peanuts and, and tree. Um, so that's like a peanut brittle. But it's a less brittle-esque because the peanuts are really finely ground. Finely ground. Um, and there's some candies. So there's like a coconut candy and not too many sweets so my baking just came from my mom again used to bake all her cakes when we were younger Ghanians like just simple pound cake so she made a lot of pound cake for events if you go to like a birthday party it's going to be tons of pound cake fruit, and savory chips as sort of the dessert which is interesting the chips are made with just flour it's basically just flour water margarine fried so Ghanians are pretty um, not about the sweets, not that they don't eat sugar a lot because all the breakfast porridges are served with sugar and milk. But yeah, I find that when I bake, it's usually inspiration from, of course, classically countries that are classically known for their desserts like France mm -hmm. um, and even a lot of Southeast Asian. I don't know if that I actually haven't done too much research. So I don't know if all the desserts are a recent addition or because their climate can grow things like sugar cane. It's been part of the culture for much longer. Well, certainly the French uh, are second to none when it comes yeah. to, <laughs> and I would have to say America is in the top, uh, at least the top five uh, with sugar. Maybe a lot of people <laughs> think American desserts are too sweet. Um, and 
self included. Sometimes I think we just have way too much sugar. But I, I think again that understanding of sugar and um, the palate for sugar. Uh, I would put the U.S. in in the top, but certainly France is is by far above everyone and it's a great balance of not being too sweet so you through your your blogging and your experiences that you share is more of recipe global recipes or does it also include uh recommendations on restaurants um at different destinations it is both so i'm really trying to i would say because the transition initially was pure restaurants so it was only restaurants in the cities i would travel to so if you go way back in my backlog you'll just see a ton of different restaurant posts in all the cities that i've been to um but i would say i'm pivoted pretty hard into recipes and kept it global aspect so what i'm trying to do right now is sort of recommend where people can get this food in the city of Toronto. So if I'm making, for example, Tibetan momos in Toronto, there we have a little Tibet. And so I can say, oh, if you really like this recipe and you're in Toronto, you can go to this these few places. Whenever I do travel, I do share restaurant recommendations. I don't do it as much on my social media platforms. I keep that to the blog. Um. And again, it totally depends on the country you're visiting. I went to Mexico about three weeks ago, Mexico City and Oaxaca, um, which was an amazing trip because Mexico is a country that is just known for their gastronomy. Um, they're just different flavors. Their ingredients are so unique to anywhere else I visited. Um, and there, uh, it's a lot of street food. And so you can recommend restaurants to visit, which I do I put, put that on the blog but sometimes it's like go to this specific area and check out the street food vendors in this spot so it just depends on the city now and and so I want to elaborate on that a little bit more because I think again if I look if I think about Americans as a whole um, we have one idea of what Mexican cuisine is, but it is so much broader than that. What did you discover in uh, Oaxaca and and what is prevalent in Oaxacan cuisine? I think the most interesting thing about Oaxacan and Mexican cuisine is how old they are. So just how old all these recipes and these practices are, their use of corn, how it just dates so, so far back to BC times. Um, we visited a lot of ancient ruins and to think that the time where those ruins were at their peak, where people were actually living on them, so, so many years ago, people were still eating the same food that they're eating now. I find that a lot of other countries, food evolves a lot just because of immigration and introduction of new pro products or produce. Um, but I found Mexico really uses local ingredients. So that was really interesting. Um, of course, there's the various number of ways you can use corn. So whether that's the tortilla or stuffing it with different things to make cuaraches, which is an oval tortilla stuffed with beans or gorditas, which is a round tortilla that's cut open, deep fried. Um, there's just so many different ways to make a version of a tortilla that is not, if it was, I, I guess if this was introduced in Canada or America, I would say Southern America maybe is pretty um used to Mexican cuisine or knows more about it than maybe Northern America, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, 
yeah, there's just so many different names for things that I don't think people realize. The incredible and different amounts of salsas, the chiles, the different ways to use tomatoes, the moles. In Oaxaca, there were six different kinds of moles. And it's incredible how many ingredients go into it and how different they are. And also just the cultural relevance behind each mole. Um, well, let's let's talk about those moles because, of course, we all love guacamole, but guaca is just avocado, so it's an avocado mole. But the, the moles are are huge in Mexico, and and uh, culturally uh, speaking, really has a lot to do with the culture. Mm-hmm. I my idea with mole, I thought mole was one thing before I went. I thought mole was sort of a brown sauce that was cooked for hours and days and had cool ingredients. Like sometimes they put bananas or chocolate. I didn't realize there were so many different kinds that had so many very different ingredients. For example, I went to sort of a a private dining situation. It was a local cook and a sommelier that kind of made this venture together. And it was um, every night they basically serve a table of 12 and they have wine pairings. They brought out a course that was chichilo mole. I'd never had it before. It was really dark and it's made from charred tomatoes and chiles, different kinds of chiles, and it's ground up. And it was so incredibly good. I didn't actually know about the significance of chichilo mole until after I did a bit more research. And apparently chichilo mole is most often served when people are mourning. So I thought that was really interesting. There was a bit of a language barrier. So when you do go to different countries, it's often nice if you can speak the language or have a translator or there's a way to get some information. Because I think that information probably could have been told to us if uh, um, we spoke a bit more Spanish. But um, it was interesting just to know how culturally significant chilo mole was. So when people are mourning, they'll have a cook in town, make huge batches and serve it to the family members. So that was really interesting. Yeah, this is what I mean by that window into a culture. A lot of times has a lot to do with food because when you think about, you know, like um, uh, those big moments in life, there's always food, and especially as families come together in celebration or mourning of 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 a part of life that's happening. Um, there's always that association, whether it is a birth or uh, a funeral or a wedding or a graduation or another milestone. Uh, so if someone it wants to approach a destination and, uh, you know, eat their way through a destination, what kind of tip would you get them to accomplish that? So I am always a loose planner. So I have a general idea of um, where I want to go. Um People are, I guess, are different trip planners. You have to at least sort of plan the cities you're going to go to because a lot of times it's good to get accommodation um, sorted out. But it is always useful to do a bit of research. For example, um, I made sure that we were in Oaxaca on a Sunday because there was a market outside of the city that I really wanted to visit and their market date was Sunday. So indigenous communities from around Oaxaca would come to this one market and I just really wanted to see that. So if I hadn't come on a Sunday or missed it by a day, wouldn't have been able to have that amazing experience. Um, the market was Tlaclolula Market, in case anyone wants to visit it. Um, but in general, I would always say do a bit of research. It's definitely necessary just to see 
certain things that or to know certain things that you should try to experience um and do research beforehand if you're not going to a destination with a guide or you're planning on getting um using information from for example your hotel so i do a lot of personal and personal research to make sure that i'm hitting all the things i want to do um ultimately when you do get to your destination if you do have a good resource so people at your hotel or accommodation can definitely tell you recommendations i always try to get recommendations from people that are local of course there's always this um feeling of oh i hope they're not recommending a tourist trap but i think if you just are genuine and ask people for their personal recommendations where they like to eat you can definitely go off the beaten trap path and try some really good food I definitely say, don't be scared of street food, but be wise when doing it. So of course, this is country dependent. Sometimes tap water is safe to drink, or sometimes it isn't. So again, things like fresh fruit and vegetables on street food maybe be a bit more weary of, but if it's hot coming off a hot grill and you see how it's being prepared, definitely don't be too hesitant to try it. Of course, if you have a sensitive stomach, um, you can plan ahead of time and bring things, but I definitely think it's sort of just pick a city, do a bit of research, definitely ask for information when you're at um, your accommodation and ask people locally. And don't be too scared. Don't be too timid. Um, and when you travel, I'm going to go on a little bit. When you travel, um, it also depends on your budget, of course. I like a mix of both, some really high end and again, just really cheap street food. And so it's nice to get a mix of both just to see um what what the country that you're visiting or the city has to offer again with the high end this is why it's important to research before because a lot of restaurants um, book out months in advance so it's good to make sure you do some research so when you get there you're not sort of stuck realizing that this should have been planned three months ago um, all fantastic advice uh really and and mixing up the the high and 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 low some of the best food um, you're at some of what I call like a dive or, you know, a, a place with plastic tablecloths, but sometimes it is some of the best food and street food is really becoming huge. I mean, even here in the United States with food trucks, and I think that can be considered a street food. Um, but yeah, street food is becoming huge around the world and people are really discovering, uh, the, the wonders in it. And thanks for the other tip of being cautious, um, and and careful and what kind of things to look for. What is the best way to follow you? The best way to follow me would be on Instagram. So um, at Travel and Munchies, um, it's Travel A N D, and then Munchies is M U N C H I E S. That's the best way to follow me because that account is sort of the most personal I get with followers. It's kind of I run the account myself. So I can see all the DMs, I can um, interact, and I post most regularly on there. That's my primary account, and every other account just gets um, posts from there sort of thing or edited versions of what I post on, on Instagram. So definitely Instagram. But if you want um, just a place for a resource, I have a website by the same name. It's linked on my Instagram account. So if you go to my Instagram account, you'll see that same you'll see a link to it but if you are not on social media which a lot of people are not 
just head to my website. Every recipe I post on Instagram, there's a written recipe on, on Instagram, as well as anytime I travel, though I have a lot more pictures and videos on Instagram, I do have a written, more official blog post on travelandmunchies.com. So it's www.travelandmunchies.com. Again, uh, Nadia, thank you so much for today. It's uh, Nadia Buachi. Travel and Munchies on Instagram. So at Travel and Munchies on Instagram or travelandmunchies.com. Yeah, now I'm hungry. I need to go eat something. (laughs) (laughs) This is lovely talking to you. The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only a page. See the world with Advantage International. Go to advantage-intl.com for a current trip or call Advantage at 1-877-428-2773. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. Follow us on social media. And don't forget to join that travel club because we are always on the go. And we always invite you to travel with us. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And I am so excited to speak with my uh, guest because uh, one of the things I love to do when I travel to South Africa is to see the the wildlife. So joining me today is Favor Jonk, who is the social media manager for the South African Animal Sanctuary Alliance in South Africa, of course. Hello, Favor, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, Javon, and thanks so much for having me on today. It is certainly my pleasure. Before um, uh, we started today, you and I were having a conversation because your name is spelled V-I-J-V-E-R, but it's pronounced favor. So you were giving me a little background (laughs) because I said I had, thank you so much for the pronouncer because uh, I I would not have pronounced it favor. (laughs) It's fun to have a different name. It certainly is. Um, So social media manager for the South African Animal Sanctuary Alliance. Uh, How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been with this company since 2012. So 11 years uh, I've been doing this for Sasa, yes. Oh, okay. And what, 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 what led you there? So funny enough, um, Before I worked for this company, I knew it very well. I had worked at a local um, breakfast guest house, a honeymoon guest house, and I constantly sent visitors to visit all the different sanctuaries in the area. And I came to really focus um, sending people to Monkey Land and Birds of Eden, which back then were the first two that existed. And I, I really... Um, gravitated towards them just because of the way they treated their animals, the way they treated the land. And I found that they were super respectful towards those two elements specifically. Um, And then I ended up actually getting married inside the Birds of Eden Sanctuary. And that all happened before I started working for them. So I think it kind of was a natural thing. So when they asked me, I was all in and I was ready to come and help. That must have been very lovely background, the bird sanctuary. Um, I can only imagine how beautiful that was. It absolutely was. Um, If you can imagine, three and a half thousand birds, 200 different species, and we just got married in the middle of all of that. 
Oh, wow. It sounds uh, very romantic and, and just a, a beautiful setting and probably very unique photos <laughs> for your, your wedding. Yes. Most <laughs> <laughs> <Now, definitely. laughs> Uh Have you always had a, a love of animals? Um, yes, I oh. honestly have. I grew up with dogs and cats. And then in 2004, I got my own pet that's my own not a family pet and it ended up being guinea pig of all things and I just truly loved my little guinea pig and from that moment on I was forever searching things of how you can make lives better for pets and for animals in general and it kind of like grew from there and now I'm a proud mom of two rescue kitties. Ah, okay now how many uh, sanctuaries are part of the South African Animal Sanctuary Alliance? So there are four sanctuaries that is currently part of the alliance. And then there is an additional um, four sanctuaries that we work very closely with, share knowledge with, share information with, and market together. And what really defines uh, an animal sanctuary? So for us, an animal sanctuary is a final forever home. That's the most important part it's a place where an animal will not be displaced yet again um us as humans have done that to animals throughout our lives right throughout history and a sanctuary has to be a final forever home so that when the animal comes to you from whatever background out of the ex-pet trade from a closed down zoo we have monkeys that come from laboratories um when they come to us they they come to us and we make sure that this is their last home that they'll be in. And here they will be treated in as free a way as possible, with as much respect as possible, without human hands interfering with them on a daily basis, meaning nobody plays with them or forces them into situations that is not 100% natural. Um, think, of, think of going to places where there might be elephants and they have the elephant bow down or stand on his hind legs. Um, those are kind of circus uh, treatment of animals and should not belong in a sanctuary. And we feel any sanctuary that forces their animals to do something that is not 100% natural um, or force them to do anything except just live a natural life, uh, that's then for us not a sanctuary. And so for viewing pleasure only, not for interactions or touching or yes. um, performance, um, as you said, that's more exactly. of a circus type of, of, of atmosphere. Um, yes. And, you know, oftentimes when people think of uh, sanctuaries and uh, national uh, parks, especially the game parks uh, for wildlife in South Africa, we think more in the north part of the country. Uh, where are these uh, sanctuaries located? So the majority of our sanctuaries are actually located in the most eastern part of the Western Cape in the area called the Garden Route. It really is a very beautiful garden area here. Lots of greenery in our area. Um, and we are just outside a small town called Plettenberg Bay, lovely little beach town. Um, and that is where three of these sanctuaries are located. That is the Monkey Land. Um, which was the world's first of its kind, uh, Birds of Eden, and then the Connie Wildlife Sanctuary, which is pretty unique in the fact that it is um, one of the only true sanctuaries in South Africa that works with wildcats that don't only have African species. Um, we're kind of of a way of thinking that we don't mind where you come from, 
but if you need a final forever home and we give it to you, we will. And um, a lot of people say, but why do you then have a Siberian tiger? I'm like, that Siberian tiger was born in Joburg. He's never been in Siberia, mm. you know? So he needed a final place to, to, to live out his life and we could give it to him. And so we did. I see. So how does the uh, visitation uh, work um, and, and still maintain this sanctuary um, environment for the animals? So the, the way we deal, the way we take care of our animals is by using tourism. So um, we sell you a ticket that you can come and visit. You can choose if you're visiting, you know, just one or maybe you want to see the birds and the cats. So we have combination tickets that you can purchase, but you purchase your ticket. And um, at Monkeyland, we welcome you. And one of our uh, specially trained safari guides take you on a monkey safari. You go into this massive 12 hectare forest for an hour and try and spot all the monkeys, which is pretty easy um and because the monkeys don't mind the humans in anywhere form they do more human watching um and they just go where they want to go do their thing and i always say it's almost like having a little look into what the amazon should have still been today with the monkeys just doing their own thing and you getting a little look into their lives as they go about it um and our guides are always there with fun and informative stories that they can tell you while you take as many photos as you want without interfering with the monkey's natural flow. And um, so, and it's a lot of fun. It really is. And it's really for all ages. And I always say, you know, it's uh, people to think, oh, monkeys, that's kids. But uh, it's the adults that sometimes enjoy it most. And <laughs> uh, definitely the photographers as well. Um, <laughs> and then at Birds of Eden, because um, as you can imagine, a lot of people, when they first walk into Birds of Eden, they go, oh, this must be Jurassic Park. And I always giggle when I hear that. I'm like, it really is. But whenever I walk into Birds of Eden, I call it my <sighs> moment. <laughs> and it's funny, but everybody tends to think they have to whisper inside Birds of Eden. It just kind of gives you that feeling of, oh, let's be nice and quiet. Because obviously loud noises will scare the birds. But you get to walk through Birds of Eden at your own pace. And there's benches everywhere. And you can just sit and do some real good bird watching and fully enjoy the scenery because oh my gosh when the birds are in flight it's really something to admire um and I often just go sit by the flamingo dams and just watch the guys you know milling around there and it really is a fantastic place and a very calm and relaxing activity um for some people, it's that one moment in the very hectic itinerary, trying to see everything in South Africa. Birds of Eden is always that moment where everything just kind of calms down and it's very relaxing and beautiful. And then at Jukani, um, we take you on a safari walk. Well, before um, you get to that, I wanted to ask you, because I, I understand yes. that in the uh bird sanctuary you have um the world's uh, largest single dome free flight aviary yes yes it is indeed it is over three hectares in size and um it is home to so a lot of bird places have smaller domes and they say okay these kind of birds go in there and these kind of birds go in there and we decided we wanted to be more a natural forest feeling where all the birds get to go 
everywhere they want. So our we have specialized aviaries outside for those who need a little bit of extra help and for the new ones as they arrive. But our main aviary is the world's largest single dome aviary. And um, like I said, 210 different species of birds. And they come from as small as a as small as a little finch that's probably as long as your pinky finger to a Caribbean flamingo, which stands a good five foot four, five foot five. I'm five foot three and I, he's slightly taller than me. Oh. Um, <laughs> so there definitely is a huge array of birds in this aviary. Oh, it's it it again. It does sound um, absolutely beautiful, and I I I am getting that picture of that aviary in one of the Jurassic Park series, as you mentioned, <laughs> Jurassic Park. It wasn't such a, a peaceful um, thing on the on on this big screen, but I <laughs> when you mentioned no, but... Jurassic Park, yeah. So that opening scene in first one, I think, where you walk out and there's the birds fly. Well, it was actually raptors, I think, that were flying um, yeah. in the movie. So when you walk into birds, you get all this greenery and then our big macaws, which is an extremely large parrot and their wingspan is almost a meter. And when you walk on into the into the aviary and these guys decide to just do this flyby with all this greenery in the back it kind of gives those kind of vibes the peaceful vibes not the okay dino is chasing us vibes not those and uh you you were about to explain to us uh, one of your other wildlife sanctuaries where you do have the big cats tell us a little bit more about that yeah so if i may jukani is part of what we call the true sanctuaries and the true sanctuaries were established in South Africa when a lot of the these big cat sanctuaries, we all got together and we said, you know what? Um, things like the movie Bloodlines came to light and the, the correlation between um, places that have cup petting and a connection to the canned hunting, those things came to light. And um, our four sanctuaries said, well, we don't allow these things and we are not in line with those kind of things. And we want people to know there's a difference um, between a sanctuary, say they're a sanctuary to have big cats and a sanctuary who truly works as a sanctuary. And therefore we created the true sanctuaries together. Um, for, and one of those is of course, Chukani. And all these true sanctuaries are in South Africa and we have um, the pix predators. So lion, leopard, um, tiger, jaguar, because some of the others have now also decided to get in some tigers when they realize there is a need for it. Um, the most popular ones recently that went with um, Born Free to uh, Bethlehem to go to the sanctuary there. Um, and they got the tigers in from Ukraine that were in an absolute dire need to find a final forever home. And at that moment, they had space and they said, you know what? why not we we have the space so we can take them and we will take them so um our four sanctuaries um it's it's jukani wildlife sanctuary of course here um in plettenberg bay it's lion's rock and panthera which are both uh, opposite sides of cape town actually um and then drakenstein which is the one up in bethlehem by born free who who just brought in those um those tigers from the Ukraine. And I actually think there's a lion in the mix as well. Um, but yeah, so our sanctuaries have a couple of rules and regulations, if I may put it that way, where we say we're 100% hands off. 
we don't breed with our lions because with our big cats because frankly there are enough um big cats at this moment in the world in captivity and we do what we can to educate and uh, work with national parks um and uh, companies like cape nature SMB in to make sure that those big cats in South Africa uh, that are still in the wild are getting a little bit more attention and protection, which is very, very important for their well-being and their future. Well, it certainly is because there is a lot of tourism. And uh, while we do like these aspects of tourism, uh, we we also want to make sure that we're doing it in a sustainable way, as well as protecting the environment and uh you know, probably a lot of these animals have endured some other things. So uh, making sure that that we can still um, have this part of tourism and that they are protected at the same time. So a lot of people always ask, what is a quick fire way to know without doing too much research and getting confused with everything that's out there? What is a quick way to know that the sanctuary is maybe above board and a true sanctuary? And I always say, if your hands have to stay in your pockets or on your camera, then that is a very good way to realize this is a good sanctuary. This is most likely a place that is above board and doing what is best for their animals. Absolutely. Um, and then I also understand that there's uh, some uh, development that's that's coming down the pike is uh, with um, additions uh, to one of the sanctuaries as, as well. Um, so if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so it's actually a lot of fun and I'm having too much fun with it at the moment. So it is at the Jakani Sanctuary, um, where the sanctuary is grown from 17 hectares to 54 hectares. Um, so we have decided to bring in a couple of new and interesting things. One of the new and interesting things that we did bring in was a farmyard. And everybody's like, what? Bringing in farm animals? And the education behind it is what's so important for us because now we can get them at a young age and teach children. Okay, so here's wild animals. We've got pacas and goats and sheep and mini horses. And we want to teach the future generations that you can have those animals on a successful farm without putting the wild animals at risk, like the, the caracals, um, the red, the black-backed jackals, the little leopards. So we're going to use our farmyard for a lot of education. And I have to say, I've been having a lot of fun with the alpacas because they are by far the cutest animal I've seen in a long time. Um, and well, they make me laugh, uh, but that is just one of the things we're doing. Another aspect that we are bringing in is a, um, a new hotel that is a zero footprint hotel. Um, they said they built everything inside containers. They put it down. And within 10 years, they can lift it up and have left uh, a better land behind. So I'm very interesting and interested in that. And I'm actually going to learn a lot more about that over the next month. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, but here's my funnest one. So my boss is actually currently dealing with the guys and it's going to be a slide, but if you can remember, well, there's a, there's a place in, uh, in Chicago where the kids go and play. And it's only for the little ones. And you get new sit and eat while the little ones play. And there's these uh, pits with filled with balls. And the kids slide into these pits of balls, right? But it's only for the little kids. We're building an adult version of that. This is a massive slide. And you sit on a on an inner tube 
and you slide down this hill and you end in a ball pit. Um, so <laughs> I think it's going to be an insane amount of fun. And I actually can't wait for it to, to be here. And my boss said to me, I just have to be a little bit patient. He's busy with the plans. Um, but yes, we are going to be putting that in. And then also we're adding to it a, a, what they call a drift track where you can ride a a, a little go-kart but the way the go-kart and that track works is like uh, if you go around the corner it kind of like slides out but if it goes off the track you're perfectly fine it stops the sliding so I'm quite interested um, in those things I think it's going to be a lot of fun and hopefully bring us a lot more uh, feet to the sanctuaries um, bring the little ones out so that they can learn all about you know how to keep farm animals safe while respecting the wildlife um so yeah so i'm i'm super excited about about those uh, new things that are coming uh, yeah. which is pretty awesome. yes and and you know adults we we all secretly sit and watch the children in the the ball <laughs> uh pit and want to be in there <laughs> uh, ab absolutely absolutely um Javon, there's one more thing i would like to tell you about if, if i have another minute please certainly so at Monkeyland, which is, it's our oldest sanctuary, and if you can believe it, it opened in 1998. Um, during during COVID uh, lockdown in South Africa, um, my CEO who started everything, this is his like baby child, uh, Tony Blechnot, he, he got worried about our monkeys. And he said, we have to find a way to protect their land. What if our board members say, we want the land back, we want to do something else with the land? What, what would happen? We have to forever make sure what board members change. And he came up with this most ingenious idea. We are selling squares. You buy one square. It's a, a meter, square meter, perfect square meter. And it's $5. And we are selling 216,000 squares. And once we've sold all these squares at $5 each, the monkeys will own their land. This is um, the first real, real estate deal between humans and animals. It's under guidance of two different um, auditing firms and two different lawyer firms to make sure that everybody's, everything is above board. And once all these squares are sold, no one will ever be able to take this land away from the animals again. And it's just a little feel good story for you. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for giving us more insight on the sanctuaries um, uh, that are part of the South African Animal Sanctuary Alliance. Um, how do we follow you or get more information about uh, the sanctuaries? So the easiest website we have and all our stuff is interlinked. Everything has links on it, but the very easiest website to go to is monkeyland.co.za. Monkeyland.co, and I'm going to say dot Z-A. <laughs> I know Z -A, you say yes. Z-A. <laughs> I oh. forgot that one. You said dot Z-A. So monkeyland, it's a land for monkeys. There we go. Monkeyland.co.za. Yes, absolutely. Well, Favor Young, thank you so much for joining me today. Such an honor and a pleasure. Again, that's the South African Animal Sanctuary Alliance. Well, that's it for the show today, but I'll be back the same time next week. And remember, wherever you go, go with all your heart, Confucius.
To find out more about the Traveling Culturati, visit TravelingCulturati.com. Follow me on social media and join the Travel Club. Special thanks to editor Ray Diaz, studio producer Diamond Sidnor, video producer Howard Little, executive producer Gene Harley, and to you, thanks for tuning in.